Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. When Noah was 600 years old, on the 17th day of the second month, all the underground waters erupted from the earth, and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. The rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. The boat floated safely on the surface of the water. Genesis chapter 7, verses 11 through 12 and 18. New Living Translation When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. Before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. The Gospel of Matthew Chapter 24, verses 37 through 39, New Living Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay, and today on Anchored by Truth, we're starting a new series brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're going to revisit one of the most familiar of the Bible stories, Noah and the Ark. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., The story of Noah and the Ark is such a familiar one to just about everyone. Even people who do not identify as Christians are familiar with it. Why do you think it was a good idea for us to take another look at a story that is so well known? Well, as you said, the story of Noah and the Ark certainly is one of the best known of all the Bible stories because it's presented in the Bible, but of course it's also been retold, if you will, in a number of other formats, including recent movies on the so-called big screen. Unfortunately, one of the problems is that when the story has been retold by organizations, by people outside the Bible, a lot of times they're not very faithful to the actual facts and details of the original Bible story. The story is popular in many ways because it's so simple that it's almost childlike. Certainly the basic details of the story are familiar to almost everyone, but when you probe beneath the surface... No pun intended. No pun intended. When you probe beneath the surface of the story and you actually start looking at the details, I think you get a story that's far more profound than the story that most of us normally think about. And I think when you actually do probe into the details and the meaning of the story, you find out that the story is far more engaging and encouraging, especially when we get into some of the details of what the story actually means and the position that the story occupies in the overall history of redemption. As just sort of a fun way of getting us going today, why don't we remind the listeners of some of the details of the biblical story But we're going to do that in a humorous way by looking at the first lesson about Noah and the Ark from one of Crystal Sea's humor series that we call Life Lessons with a Laugh. So listening to this humor piece, we're going to be reminded of some of the details of the story, but I also hope it will allow people to have a little bit of a humorous episode as they go through their day. 
Hi, I'm R.D. Fierro from Crystal Sea Books, here today on location in our mobile recording studio, which is to say the Crystal Sea Cabana. You mean this tent we got from that going out of business sale at the discount store? We're set up on the North Fork of the South Branch of the Eastern Turn of the Oaklockney River and Drainage Basin. Today, you can just call me Captain R.D. because I'm feeling very nautical. Also here with me today is someone who is well known to the Crystal Sea boating community, a solid sailor who definitely knows that naval architecture isn't just a reference to a different kind of belly button, Seaman Second Class... uh... Seaman Second Class? Really? The name you're looking for is Jerry. Right, Seaman Second Class Larry. Uh, That's not my first or last name. To me... Second Class Larry is the rotating beacon that everyone is seeking when their boat is leaking and they're close to freaking. Not sure if he's talking about a lighthouse or just channeling his disco years. Anyway, for this next series of life lessons from the Bible, we thought we'd change our location from our worldwide corporate headquarters near historic downtown Tuag. I do like Tuag, both the town and the breakfast. What can I say? to a location more in keeping with the theme of our current series. Today, we're pondering that literally world-changing episode involving the literally best-known charter boat captain ever. Of course, I'm talking about Noah. Oh, that's why you went come out here, where we have to dodge these vulture-sized mosquitoes. And how come they don't seem to find you as as tasty as they do me? Wisdom, second-class Barry. Still, Jerry... Or, more specifically, the application of wisdom. You don't actually think mosquitoes make a choice to not bite you based on your... based on your wisdom, do you? Sure I do. Well, that and the mosquito repellent, which I bought prodigiously when we decided to do this series, and applied generously this morning before we came out here. Though it does get a bit sticky in this heat. Oh, that's what I smelled. It sure would keep me away. Exactamundo, Jeramundo. And the application of wisdom is one of the primary lessons we get from the story of Noah and the worldwide Drencho-Rama. I'm sure all our listeners remember the story. The Lord warned Noah that he was going to cause the flood of all floods to destroy all the evil he saw on the earth. A flood of biblical proportions, literally. Literally. Again, I thought we'd gone over this. Afraid so, my second-class friend. Literally, the Lord was going to cause the flood and then write about it. I mean, where do you think the phrase, flood of biblical proportions, came from? I know where the phrase comes from. It's just... Well, while second-class Harry entertains his friends over there in this riverside hothouse, let's remember that the Bible says Noah had found favor in the Lord's eyes because he was a righteous man. So at the same time the Lord warned Noah about the coming flood, he gave him the plans for how to build a really big charter boat. A boat big enough to save Noah and his family, and a whole (coughs) boatload, literally, of animals. Boatload, really. Literally, really. Sheesh. Ow, where's that mosquito repellent? And why did Noah bring bring them along? I'm not sure about that, Jerichito. I'm not an expert on mid-third millennial B.C. entomology or endangered species requirements. 
What I do know is that Noah was told to bring the animals into the ark two by two. Two, two by 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 two I also know that Noah displayed a remarkable degree of wisdom and persistence when he obeyed the Lord. Most scholars think Noah took 50 to 75 years to actually build and provision the ark. Imagine that, starting a building project at least 50 years before you see any evidence it will even be necessary. Today, most people are flummoxed if they have to wait an hour in the doctor's office. Step on the scale. And leave your shoes on this time. Last time the odor was... Ew. So you see the point, right, secondhand Larry? One of the things that made Noah righteous was that he was wise enough to listen to what the Lord said and not wait to apply it to his life. If he had waited, who knows? The ark might not have been finished on time. Just like if I hadn't bought the mosquito repellent before we came out here, I'd be providing snacks to the locals like you. Got you, R.D. Got you. Uh, it's Captain R.D. And (sighs) hey, how come you look so comfortable all of a sudden? It's called the application of wisdom and technology, Captain. A generator, fan, and fridge. The proper application of technology to your circumstances is a sign of wisdom in our age. Right, uh, second, uh, jer- jer- r- right. Wisdom should be applied to your circumstances no matter what age we're at or in. When the Lord speaks about leaks, creaks, or squeaks, you better plan for the crisis before the water or temperature rises. Again, Jeremation, you have pulled cool treats of truth out of that big ice chest of biblical refreshment. The secret is to get one with wheels, so you don't accidentally drop it on your toes when you're wearing flip-flops. Well, that's it from Jeremy. Oh, and it's still Jerry. Me, R.D., and the whole Crystal Sea Cabana crew for today. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where... We're not famous... But our boss is. Well, obviously, you and Jerry have a good time together. And despite the fact that Noah and the Ark is one of the best-known stories from the Bible, I picked up something from the life lesson I hadn't really focused on before. You rarely think about how long it really took Noah to build the Ark. You said some Bible scholars believe that Noah was involved in building the Ark for more than 50 years. Maybe as much as 75 years. 50 to 75 years, or maybe even more. The first time that Noah is mentioned in the Bible, it says that Noah had three sons after he was 500 years old. Then the Bible story goes on to say that the floodwaters came on the earth when Noah was 600 years old. So that's a span of 100 years between telling us when Noah had his children and it tells us that the floodwaters started to come on the earth. Well, let's just say that Noah had his first son when he was at the age of 500. Even if it took 75 years to actually build the ark, Noah's oldest son, Japheth, would have been 25 when the construction actually began. In other words, Japheth would have been easily old enough to actually help with the construction. And in addition, Japheth's younger brothers, Shem and Ham, would at that point likely have been either late teens or early 20s. So they also would have been plenty old enough to actually help with the construction. 
But of course, there's no reason that Noah had to wait until Japheth was in his 20s to actually begin preparing to build the ark. Noah had already been given the instructions by God that he was supposed to build the ark, so Noah could easily have begun making preparations even while his sons were still growing up and they were too young to actually do physical work on the ark. That's true. You know, when we hear the stories of famous people in the Bible, we have a tendency to forget that their lives were just like others. Their babies took time to grow up, just like ours do. They went through their equivalent of diapers and teenage years. But all the while that's happening, that doesn't mean that Noah had to be idle. Likely Noah would have not been idle because he had already been told by God that he had a major building project in front of him, one that would consume a substantial portion of his life. Yes. So one of the first things we need to take note of in Noah's story is that much of Noah's story, the unfolding details, if you will, of Noah's life, are not recorded in any depth in Scripture. Matter of fact, they're really not recorded at all. But just because they're not recorded in Scripture, just because the details of Noah's life aren't recorded in Scripture, it doesn't mean that Noah's life didn't unfold in just about the same way that our lives unfold for us. So, first point we need to remember is that Noah had a story that had a lot more to it than just that which is contained within the Bible description. But a second point I want to observe about Noah is that Noah's story, overall his story, is an amazing story. But really, from Scripture, all the indications are that Noah was just a regular guy. He was just a regular man. Noah grew up. He got married. He had kids. Noah's life was a life just like most of ours. What makes Noah's story so amazing is not who Noah started out to be, but Noah's story became amazing because Noah was willing to turn over his life and his story to God. Noah's story turned out to be amazing, not because Noah was amazing, but because Noah was willing to turn his life over to an amazing God. Now, we know about Noah at all because the Bible says that Noah was a righteous man. And that means that, first and foremost, Noah was a man who was willing to serve God. That was true for Noah, even when God gave him some instructions that would have seemed laughable at the time that Noah first received them. You're referring to the fact that Noah was told to build an enormous boat, the ark. Even though it's entirely possible that Noah did not live anywhere near the ocean, Though it's hard to know exactly how current geography relates to the pre-flood geography, it is certainly true that right now the locations referred to in Noah's story are nowhere near an ocean. So Noah's decision to honor God's command really was an act of faith. Undoubtedly, that faith was one of the reasons the Bible says that Noah was a righteous man. Yes. So let's think about this for just a second. The Bible is very clear that the wickedness in Noah's day was very widespread. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate that men in general were so wicked that Noah was the only man who could have been called truly righteous. And in fact, the Bible says that God was sorry that he had made man and put man on the earth. Now, when the Bible says that God is sorry, the Bible is using an anthropopathism. An anthro-what? Anthropopathism. It's a figure of speech where a human emotion or feeling is attributed to God. 
The Bible is very clear that God is omniscient and he knows everything that is going to happen before it happens. But what the Bible is doing when it says that God was sorry that he made man, the Bible is conveying the depth of God's grief and anger over man's wickedness. So the Bible is not trying to indicate that God somehow had an actual change of mind. What the Bible is doing is allowing us to connect with the depth of God's anger and disappointment over the wickedness of man so that we can understand God's emotional experience at that moment. Also, I think it's important to note that I don't for one minute think that Noah's righteousness was accidental. I think it would be far more correct to say that God had prepared a righteous man to continue the survival of life on the earth, knowing the depths of wickedness to which man was going to descend. So this, then, is another great illustration of the covenant of grace that God had launched in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve's fall. We've often talked about the covenant of grace on Anchored by Truth, but maybe it would be helpful to do a brief review of the concept of biblical covenant. Covenants are similar to contracts, aren't they? Yes. One theologian I heard once described covenants as contracts that have a sacred dimension. Now, I like how the New Geneva Study Bible describes a covenant. The New Geneva Study Bible says that a covenant in Scripture is a solemn agreement, negotiated or unilaterally imposed, that binds the parties to each other in permanent defined relationships with specific promises, claims, and obligations. And it goes on to say that when God makes a covenant with his creatures, he alone establishes the terms. So the covenants in the Bible are God-established covenants, but they are still the same as the best of the earthly contracts. God's covenants and the best earthly contracts are consistent, unified, and they're always directed towards a purpose. It's just that the covenants in the Bible are directed toward purposes of eternal significance. So one of the thoughts or hopes that's behind us doing a life lesson series on the story of Noah and doing this episode today on Anchored by Truth is we want to get people to actually take a second look at the story of Noah and spend some time with the details of the story. There's so much more there in the story besides just a woodworker or a boat builder or a cargo of critters. The Noahic covenant is one of the earliest and most important covenants in the Bible. So the lesson we heard today and others in the series are designed to entice readers to go back and study the story of Noah. Because Noah wasn't just a great boat builder and zookeeper, he was also important to the overall story of redemption. Exactly. Or to quote from the life lesson, Exacto Mundo. Noah's story is an important part of the covenant of grace, as well as being a great illustration of God's grace. And it's also a great story to begin to examine how the Bible fits in with the broader culture that is present today. And the story of Noah and the Ark is a great example of how all of the books and stories in the Bible fit together in one grand overarching story, one grand overarching saga the saga of creation, fall, and redemption. Even though the individual books of the Bible were written over a span of 1,500 years, it's always important to remember that all of those books written over all that time span are always telling one single story. You know, in an odd way, Noah's story is so simple that even children can learn valuable lessons from it, but as we've mentioned earlier, it's so profound that we could spend hours and probably days talking about its ramifications. 
Can you expand on that idea just briefly? Well, the story of Noah and the flood has charming details. A family is miraculously preserved from a violent catastrophe. The family is preserved because the family obeys God, and the family builds a boat that saves all kinds of animals. And at the end of the saga, the drama, the tension, all the devastation of the flood, a rainbow comes and signals that everything is going to be all right, and then the earth is renewed and repopulated. So, even if the story were fictional, it would be captivating, exciting, hope-filled, and inspirational. The story would be a prime example of virtue triumphing over evil and danger. But the Bible doesn't treat the story as fiction, and that's when the problems begin. Precisely. The Bible treats the story of Noah as history. It recounts the story in a very straightforward narrative, including dates and details, along with its description of the devastating deluge. Now, since in this day and age we look to science to solve all mysteries, the notion that a worldwide catastrophic flood once occurred sets both believers and skeptics off on a search to see whether there is actually scientific evidence that can either prove or disprove the story. And of course, the search for these details from science has been so widely and popularly reported that it has spawned television specials and series, and it's generated no small amount of debate both in the scientific community as well as outside of it, and some of that debate has been intense and passionate. So when we enter Noah's world, so to speak, we find ourselves at the intersection of history, science, faith, academia, and culture. And some of the intellectual waters into which we wade can get very deep very quickly. Ouch. You mean a flood of conflicting ideas. Yep. It's pretty easy to get inundated. The point is that to responsibly unpack how Noah's story fits into the larger world of today, we have to start considering some questions that require quite a bit of study and thought. I mean, what is the nature of truth and how can we know it? Are science and faith opposed to one another? Can science and faith be in harmony if each is properly understood and applied? And what do the latest scientific findings say about the possibility or probability that the entire globe was at one time underwater? Well, that's a lot to address. Are we going to get to it all in one lesson? Definitely not, but that's okay. We've got several lessons planned for this NOAA series. So we're going to touch on all of these subjects while we enjoy continuing to listen to me trying to master tricky two-syllable names. Do you ever get them right? Well, listeners will just have to tune in and find out. Well, before we close for today, let's reinforce the point about biblical covenants, especially about why the covenant God made with Noah is so important to redemptive history. Great idea. Genesis chapter 9 is really important to do that. You're thinking of verses 9 through 12, quote, Then God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants, and with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will flood destroy the earth. I am giving you a sign of my covenant with you and all living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is the sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. Yes. 
The covenant of grace was what God inaugurated immediately after the fall to begin the process of redemption. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is mercy that is bestowed on undeserving recipients. Grace is God's sovereign election to redeem His creation and His people, notwithstanding the fact that there is nothing that His people could do to earn it. And the Bible says that if a benefit is earned, then it's not grace. That's wages or compensation. But redemption has to come from grace because an offense against an infinite being like God carries with it infinite consequences. So one part of the Noahic covenant that we see immediately from the fact that God designated the rainbow to be a symbol of that covenant is that the Lord promised Noah that he would never again destroy life on the earth by means of a flood. And I imagine for a family who had just come through the traumatic experience of 40 days of rain and gale-like conditions and living in a boat for a year, I can imagine that that reassurance from God would have been pretty doggone important. You know, if God had just made the promise without granting them a sign, that would have been encouraging. But God didn't stop there. He proceeded to tell Noah that there would be a visible sign that Noah and his family could use to remind themselves of the promise that he had made. Then that raises the question of whether rainbows existed before the flood and its aftermath. Did God change the natural laws when he caused the flood? Well, biblical commentators are not in agreement on the answer to the question, but I think that John Calvin's assessment is probably the correct one. And I'm not going to go too much into the actual quote from John Calvin, except to say that Calvin reminded us that just because God put a particular significance on a visible symbol, that doesn't mean that the symbol did not exist previously. It merely means that God, who is sovereign over all creation, is allowed to designate the use of a particular physical element in whatever way God chooses. And that second point, and this point is also made by a great article that's on creation.com by Dr. Jonathan Sarfati. Sarfati notes in that article that there are other examples of existing materials or practices that God decreed to be a new sign. For instance, when Jesus ordained the Lord's Supper be composed of bread and wine, He declared a new meaning for those substances, the bread and wine, that had been in existence for thousands of years. That's a great lesson, isn't it? Rainbows may have been present in the sky before the flood, but God assigned a new meaning to their presence. As you said earlier about contracts and covenants, covenants have a sacred dimension that serves an eternal purpose. So after the flood, God used rainbows as part of his covenant to show Noah and the rest of us that he not only created everything, but also that he continues to superintend his creation today. Yes, and while we're going to have to go more into this subject on future shows, two more thoughts for today. First, God began his covenant of grace long before he sent the flood. God could have ended all the life on earth because of the wickedness that was present, but he didn't. And the second point I would make is that God is continuing that plan of redemption of grace today, and God is still using righteous people to do it. Sounds to me like a good time for a prayer. Today's prayer comes from another one of Crystal C's offerings, the book Purposeful Prayers, and it's a prayer for the renewal of the church. A prayer for the renewal of the church. Righteous and just Father, you know the thoughts and meditations of your people as no one could. You are the Lord of our hearts and the fulfillment of all of our ambitions. 
You have numbered the hairs on our head, so you certainly know when we propose to do your will and when we don't. Lord, there are a great many faithful followers of yours in our nation today. There are many whose hearts are totally devoted to you and who want to see your kingdom come and your will be done. Yet within your church, we believe there are many who have been tempted by the snares of the world and a great many who have fallen prey to the evil one. We are saddened and grieved by this, and we yearn for restoration and renewal of the church in our land. Lord, if this nation is to survive and remain a land where people may freely worship you, we acknowledge that it will not be done through or by our efforts. Only the Holy Spirit can change the hearts of our countrymen, and we believe that he will act only as we persistently and continuously pray for renewal to come. Words do not do justice to the longings within our spirits to see this nation be visited by another great awakening. As you have done in the past, bring light to your people. Let us learn to handle your word properly and then bring it to the world by Christ's power, through Christ's love, and praying continuously in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.